Oh, 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 let me do that. Oh, fuck! Fucking shit. It's just water, right? Yeah, it is. Are we on air? Oh, fucking bollocks. Sorry about that. We're fine. I'll edit everything. <laughs> We're gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna laugh and dance and shout together. We're gonna have a real good time together. Hangover. Testing. Uh, say something again, John. Welcome to my squalor. Well, here we are. Um, we're going to talk about Hex Induction Hour, right? Yeah. I, I guess I'll give a brief intro. This is John Tottenham here, my uh, friend and... Uh, editor. He's my editor. <laughs> uh, John Tottenham is a, is a poet and uh, a... a, a Prince of a man. Um, right. uh, he lives in a historic Angelino Heights. That's where we are right now. And we had so much fun talking about the fall the first time on Jokerman podcast that we decided we'd just do this again, just free ball it, go for the jugular. And talking about, yeah, Hex Induction Hour. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people's first fall record, I think. You say this is the first record a lot of people come to the fall through this record? I feel like they do. I mean, m- maybe you haven't had this experience, but I don't know, you like early fall stuff, right? Like, you tend to skew more toward the early stuff. I do. And I feel like a lot of people do, which is understandable. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I came to it like with a more holistic early experience of like the compilations. And so I liked a lot of stuff from all over. But a lot of people, I think, do hear this first, for some reason. Uh, seems to be the record people talk about most. And it's the most immediate one. It's incredibly abrasive and challenging, I suppose. It's more abrasive than I remember, even. I was listening to, like, Mere Sued Mag Ed. And oh, it's that's like, the most abrasive cut. It's totally <laughs> fucking crazy. I was, like, really astonished at it. Um, yeah. I mean, the elephant in the room with the first track, the classical. Yeah. It's, like, a weird situation where, like, one of a band's most famous songs is also one that has, like, a thing that makes it completely unplayable. Well, it, uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> In the first 10 seconds, Smith employs the N-word, as it is now known, saying, where are the obligatory N-words? I think to some extent he was railing against tokenism 
and it's something that he probably perceived was going on, especially in his dis in in London, despised. And because there were a lot of bands around in those days who did seem to want to bask in the reflected cool of having, you know, a cool black guy yeah, in the band. They hung out with Rastafarians and so on and made a big sure. deal about it. Too. Rudy can't fail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that maybe that's... Uh, that, that, that makes... I think the generous reading of the song in and its use of the N-word is, you know, should you try to make a generous read of it, uh, it's just that it he hated that feeling that... He, he hated posers, and I think that he was making a comment on people who would... Um, voiced in some kind of sense of diversity just to boost their own false credibility. Yeah, it's a shame he's not around now. I'd love to know what he made of cancel culture. But, of course, we lost him exactly five years ago this week. Yeah, this is kind of the uh, the other reason we decided to do this. is um, It's the five-year anniversary of his death. And it's funny you say that because, like, cancel culture, I guess... It's evolved and changed so much even since 2016. Yeah. Things are very different even from that. Well, I mean, he was railing against cancel culture and all that. He was railing against Before cancel culture. Before it even cult- existed. Yeah, in, in the womb, in like the <laughs> embryo. Yeah, because yeah, he's talking about fuckface, the N-word, pedophiles, pedophiles. Yeah, that's pretty Pedophile. funny, actually. You, what, pee? I, I didn't realize that until today. It's until really, today? No, 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 the... the there's some he lifts a big star lyric in one of the songs. The thing, that song thirteen, in which Alex Chilton's wait, which trying to seduce which a thirteen-year-old girl. Yeah, I'm not sure which song it's in. It's in uh, might be Missued Magad. He he lifts a lyric of, from thirteen. Well, apparently some people think it was. Uh, it probably referenced. was. It c- could be. I mean, people read so much into his lyrics, but mostly he's just tossing stuff off. You know. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the paradox of him, is that you can read infinitely into it, but also it'll end up often being like chasing your tail. There is that site, The Annotated Fall, yes, where it's, it's like very they, useful. they do a really good job, actually, I think, of contending with the lyrics as, as honestly and with as much effort as you could. Um we, I don't know if that's what we're doing here. This is kind of just going to be a a bowl session. We're we're shooting the shit, uh, as we say in America, uh, John. So yeah, the classical. I always thought he said "home of the brave." Actually, it's "home of the vain." This is the home of the vain. This is the home of the vain. Which makes perfect sense. With the home of the vain. This rest of the lyric. He said something about this record being his sort of diatribe against... I think he said Elvis Costello and all them boring fuckers. He said, like, Spandau Ballet. Yeah, because it was a dreadful time for music in England. Do you remember? Yeah, What was he referring to exactly? Yeah, exactly. People like Spandau Ballet and... It had all gotten very boring. And, yeah, all the new romantics and... Wham and what have you. See, I don't even know what Uh, that sounds like. but But, you know, Smith... It's a sign of real character if you can hate somebody that likes you. Um, well, it's the classic thing, isn't it? Though, of, like, uh, I wouldn't want to be part of a 
club that would have me as a member. Attributed to Groucho Marx, but I think it appears originally in Freud's wit and its relation to the unconscious. Last time we talked about the fall, I think I was zeroing in on this idea of him being the enemy of the uh, self-satisfied. Yes, the smug. And I think that this record feels like a an all-out attack on that at every turn. Yeah. Yeah, there's that other one. I think that just got kicked off Rap Trade or ended under the association with them under somewhat acrimonious circumstances. And, yeah, there's that other song, Deer Park, right? Yeah, what, that's, what's that about? Well, today, here on the Vitamin B Glandular Show... I think Deer Park's the title of a book by Norman Mailer, but he was using it as a uh, term just to sum up, you know, the, just the trendy scene in West London and rough trade and all that. Because Deer Park, the the Mailer book is like sort of about the uh, like rehab centers for Hollywood stars. Yeah, in, in Palm Springs. Yeah, in in the fifties. Think or, so. Yeah, late fifties probably. And he's kind of just making a it. Well, he. He would later do this a lot. Do you know the song um, uh, Idiot Joy Showland? Oh, yeah. That's about Manchester, isn't it? It's about the clubs. It Hacienda seems to be about, yeah, that whole... Uh, yeah, the back, uh, It's a similar thing about, like, the glam. And he's got that song Glam, glam Racket. Racket yeah. There's all these songs throughout that are music hating on musicians. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know that song Session Musician? Yeah, that's right. on the record. Yeah, it's an outtake. Um, or it's no, it's not on the record, but it's an outtake. Mm. I don't know that song terribly. I don't well. either. I mean, there's things about the record I don't fully haven't fully grasped. I think that this would be one I need to spend more time with, but it's worth talking about as it is now because I don't know. As I think we are both full, fully fledged fall fans, and we have every right to discuss any of these records. I think once you develop a, like a really comprehensive appreciation of the man and the music, you can kind of just jump around, and that's part of the joy of the mm. band is you get to like rediscover in all these weird nooks and crannies. I see you brought your copy of Renegade. Along. Yeah, I, d I do have it. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's. Have you read it? Yeah, some of it, most of it. I mean, it's just him blathering into a tape recorder, really, and it's very amusing. Yeah, I mean, I just turned to a random page. Uh, <laughs> chapter 11, The Wife. <laughs> Women are more in tune with rhythms than men. It's very hard being in an all-male group. They don't get anything I say to them. The tunes in my head don't go past three chords, but men can't get it. There's something in their brain that's out of touch. He talks as if he's like... A a woman here. There's something in their brain that's like they can't get in touch with the idea. I always feel alienated from men musically, whereas women can transform my ideas into reality a lot more accurately. That's fascinating. Yeah. The slits were great at knocking out stuff like that until they turned reggae. Yeah, see, there you <laughs> so go. So there it the is. The slits were a perfect example of the sort of acts he was railing against in the classical. Where he's feeling like they kind of uh i think his use of the n-word there is is sort of his perception that those bands who appropriated black culture and music were doing it in this kind of shallow way yeah that was a a, a way to avoid developing their own ideas is more about his hatred of mediocre white musicians than it is a, a 
aimed at black people yeah, yeah, at it's all. Yeah, it's aimed at the white people. Prevalent in England at that time, there was this white boy's soul scene with all these dreadful acts like, um, you know, ABC and Haircut 100 I and don't that sort know. of shit. Yeah. Do, you're uh, like, oh, you know, <laughs> ABC and Haircut 100. Yeah. They, they were attempting to play what soul or funk. It was a Blue lot of that soul. going around, yeah, but it was not very soulful. Well, I mean, Smith covered quite a few soul and reggae songs himself, funnily enough, and even some disco. He did that Lost in Music, the Sister Sledge song. Um, Lost in the Music, yeah, from, uh, from Infotainment Scan. I mean, I, I do want to remark on just the music of the song, the classical, because mm. it's it's great. Like, it's such a anthemic song. It more than almost any other opener on a record. It just like explodes out of the gate, and I think it's kind of one of their best. Jawbone and the Air Rifle. What, what a what a title! What a great song! It has a, it has a strange chorus. It has a kind of music hall sing along chorus. <laughs> Story songs, like in the wings. fine tradition of his story songs, like Wings or um, you know New Face in Hell. Do you want to read some lyrics from it? Yeah, they're really good. Um, let's see. Or oh, what's that other one? Impression of Jade Temperance. Yeah, okay. Uh, the rabbit killer left his home for the cloth. That's the sort of field, and said goodbye to his infertile spouse. <laughs> Carried air rifle and firm stock of wood, carried night sight telescope light. A cemetery overlooked valley of mud, and the gravekeeper was out on his rounds, yellow white shirt buried in duffel coat hood, keeping edges out with mosaics, colour stones. Oh my god. But it goes on for a bit. Some great lines at the end. Um, what was it? You know what this, the breakdown in it? It reminds me of. 
that other one, uh, you had your chances, you had your chance. What's that song? What's that? It's another fall song. I don't know. It has a similar breakdown. There's been no war for 40 years and getting drunk fills me with guilt so after eight I prowl the hills. 11 o'clock I'm too tired to fuck. You see I've been laid off work. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, I am floored by just how much there is in terms of just text. Like you can really be a fan of his and then you don't even realize that there's all this stuff under your nose. There's so much of it. People always asking, like, where do I start yeah. with the fall? Uh, someone just asked me that tonight. I sent them a link to you, Slates. I think that's a good would, place to start. Cause why? It only has six songs on it, and it's at a perfect point in between. It's pretty... It's accessible. It's fairly accessible, and I think it highlights all of their best qualities also. Pink Press Rats! <laughs> I didn't know this, like, full disclosure, I don't know this record that well. I mean, I've already kind of said that. I really, I've spent more time, I will say to my credit, I probably spent more time than most with the later stuff. Yeah. The 90s. Yeah. And, and That's also admirable. And, and it, somebody's got to do it. No, I, I mean, I, I, I've listened to it a lot too, but I can't say I'm as familiar with Levitate as I am with Hex Induction. <laughs> I'm more familiar with Levitate than I am with Hex Induction. Wow. And I think partly it's because of my contrarian uh, <laughs> attitude where I was like, well, what's this random fucking record? And then I just kind of decided I would like it. Because it's, you know, an ego-stroking music snob thing to do. <laughs> to be like, oh, I know this yeah. random-ass record that got zero promotion that, like, even fans of the band haven't heard. The one that has that cover of I'm a Mummy. Do you yeah, know about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, Like a novelty Halloween song. <laughs> What happens when I walk up to somebody? <laughs> I'm a mummy. I'm going to Spain was a sort of novelty song. I've sold my car, put in my job. I'm 34 years old. I think it's time I saw the world. Cause I hate the cold and rain and gray and my 
that guy? You know who I'm talking about. I the, don't. I mean, I think it was a one-hit wonder for one thing. Anyway, the fact that either of us... and The fact that you don't know it is a testament to how obscure of material he's picking from. Because John is probably better at understanding and knowing about when this type of shit came out than almost anybody I know. Whenever we play the game where I have you guess what year a song is from, you you just kind of like know. It's uncanny. Uh, Yeah, it's just a matter of having consumed so much pop culture at an impressionable age. I can't get out of my head now. I mean, I can't name four trees, but I can name every member of Deep Purple. It's pitiful. You say you like the outdoors. I do love the outdoors. Name four trees. (laughs) Uh, Can't. uh, Well, Hip Priest is next. Oh, well, yeah. This one is, I think, a massive... Yes, it's huge. It's a massive song. I once got stuck at a traffic light downtown and this song was playing. The light didn't change. You just sat there for 10 minutes listening to the whole song. And whenever I go by that traffic light now down on Figueroa Street, refer to it as the hip priest light. You know, I'm really amazed by what you just said because I swear to God, I have a similar experience with this song where every time I drive through Malibu Canyon, like when you take Canaan and then you go through the tunnels there and like this other way of getting to Malibu that was like the first time I guess I really listened to this song and this song more than others I have attached to it this experience of driving in a specific place I don't know what that is but well it was a memorable thing to to be driving and hearing this it's a magical song all the young groups know they can imitate, but I teach because I'm a hip priest. Is he talking about I'm himself? as clean as a pack of chocolate treats. <laughs> that was an English brand of candies. What? Chocolate, chocolate treats? Chocolate treats, yeah, it's T-R-E-E-T. That's 
I never noticed that lyric. That's great. I'm clean as a packet of chocolate treats. <laughs> what were they like? Is it just like a... Yeah, they were like M&M's, M&Ms. or something. That's great. Is, he, is it just autobiographical, I do you think? I think so. I mean, as much as it could be. I, mean, it's I think me- he's referring to himself. Megalomaniacal, I guess, but... Also, not incorrect. I, I don't know. Maybe he's talking about the bullshit artists among us uh, who are fancy themselves sort of gurus of taste. I can't imagine being that way myself. Well. Well, you know, the line, the through line is, um, he is not appreciated. Yeah, it's it's a really funny song, if it is autobiographical. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much thought he would have put into it, honestly, but it, it's a powerful piece. It's powerful. Well, he is not haunting. appreciated. It's well, I think he didn't feel appreciated at the time. I mean, they were thinking about just canning everything after this record. You and I, who both feel so beloved. Yeah. How, hard to how imagine, can we relate to yeah. such a song? <laughs> <laughs> you know, every time you write a poem, John, it's like, you know, trending and the world yeah. stops and everybody's talking about it and around the water cooler. But if, it, if that weren't the case, <laughs> you know, you might feel sort of slighted in some way um, by the uh, lack yeah. of care, the, the fact that. Most people are not sensitive to the, <laughs> the, the cast of the moon upon the, the lake and so forth. The sound of yeah, the moon. Yeah, something keeps me going. I, neglect can be a powerful, powerful force. A powerful motivator? Neglect? Yeah, it's powerful fuel. Well, I guess it is, because when you do get some attention, it's like, okay... Something happened. I can. Tr- I, I'll try again. Maybe it'll happen again. It's like gambling. Yeah, but they always say it's never enough, and I'm curious to find out if that was the case. Well, I think that maybe to be a, a successful creative artist to, is to get to a point where you don't rely on that directly. Yes, because yeah, if you rely yeah. on it directly, you'll go insane and yeah. you'll burn out. Um, and th- I think to... You have to take those small victories as a, especially as a poet of any kind. You have to like pay attention more to who liked it, not how many people. Right. Well, that's what they say about the art world, which is a sad indictment of it. It's not how many people like your it's work, who it's likes who likes your work. I guess that's not I'm what you show, it's where you show. That's true. Yeah. It is true. And I mean, context not is not the case in any other art. But is it? Uh, the case in music. I, I, no, it's not. not at all. You can have bands on big labels or prestigious labels who get ignored and vice versa. Why is that? I wonder. I mean, well, maybe that's 
Well, because there's an audience for, for music that there isn't for art. I mean, with music, there's always these middlemen scurrying around sat, trying to satisfy the demands of an ever-present audience. With art, they have to create the audience themselves. Hmm. Yeah. And you, the same with... You, the only people who know about art are the people making it or the people who are promoting it. Yeah. At the gal or the people working I mean, at the with music, there's always going to be an audience for music and that's why the quality is able to decline because they'll take whatever's thrown at them ultimately it's why i think that's what he's kind of railing against on the record or in general is this thing of um is that principle that like if nobody steps in to be an alternative the dregs will be made mass the dregs are the cream the dregs become the cream and nobody can tell the difference yeah. You have to have some kind of almost indigestible thing, like a bitter delicacy to uh, <laughs> uh, sort of give you some perspective and not just keep shoveling down your McNuggets of music. Um, it, I think the music business was heading that way in those days. But there will always After be the a mark. the surge of punk and post-punk and so on, it was 1983. That's where we are at with Jokerman, too, at this point, which is interesting. Oh, like, yeah. we're at the early 80s. And we just talked about um, where Lou and John were. John was making music for a new society, which is like his most inaccessible, yeah. completely non-commercial record. The one rock song on it, he was like, it shouldn't be there. The label put it on. They won't, insisted. It's great, but um, everything else is basically uh, like existential horror uh, experimentation music. What was Lou? What was Lou's record? Lou did the Blue point? Mask, which is oh. maybe his best. You like that one? I think it's great. I don't know it very well. Oh, it's, it's got Robert Quine on it, right? It does. It does certainly have. It has Quine all over it. It's I think one of his strongest records um, artistically, and it's also it's not a, co a very commercial record either. Mm. There. So I, I feel like there's a reason these guys were all kind of doing something against that. It must have really felt like there was some kind of smothering happening, some kind of Well, I think the early 80s were very similar to the... I mean, the mid-80s were similar to the mid-70s in that way. You know, the glory days of the 60s were long gone and everything was getting flattened down as just a bunch of white men in white suits snorting white powders in <laughs> in the 80s. Yeah, it was all this vapid... I mean, yeah, post-punk had been assimilated into the mainstream to some extent, and a lot of the people who were in those bands had become quite commercial in their works. Right. Also. Even P Pill was putting out... Yeah, even that. I mean, they put out great stuff. I, I like, like, album. I think that's sort of like a... Isn't it what it's called? What's that? The one that has oh, the rise one that, on the, it. The one that stole the slipper record sleeve with the generic thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like a pretty clever... It it's, might not seem clever now, but I still like that, and I feel like it's kind of of a piece with what's happening here. It seems more like the British were making music, commenting on... Like, you know, American rock musicians, I feel like, are the ones that the British look at and and criticize or they they take it in and care 
deeply about it, like British music fans have this kind of very deep uh, stake in American music, probably more than Americans do. And mm. they actually made music about that to some extent. Like, I feel like this record and what you see with Pill is kind of meta commentary on just the state of music as a whole. And meanwhile, you have John Cale, you know, he's not American, but, uh, you know, he might as well be yeah, with Lou Reed well, yeah. making... So they're not doing that. They're kind of out on their own doing really personal stuff. I feel like the British are kind of the critics of the world in some way. And this is a really interesting point where critique brushes against and in some way it kind of becomes art. The art becomes of a, a one with being a critic. Mm. Yes, very much so. It's like, what happens when a critic is so inspired by their uh, critique that they want to make a song about it? And they do, and it's good. That's what Perubu was like, too, because David Thomas was a critic. And I think yeah. he, so people bugged him enough like about, like, well, why don't you do it if it's so easy? And he just went, he decided, well, I'll do it. But this is sort of different. Because this seems to be like Marky Smith seems to be able to go back and forth. Yeah, in I mean, mode David, David Thomas Perry, they didn't really shoot at targets like the Paul did. No, they were it was much, much more abstract. More abstract, more more personal, uh, personally abstract. I'm as I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm looking at the modern dance on LP right there in, in front of a large stack. I mean, Perry is a really important yes, band for me, actually. Me too. Up to a point, I'd never really got past uh, the second record. Really? You, it's so different. Dub housing? The quirky stuff. No, New Picnic Time. You, have you? Well, that's, that's No, I mean, I never to. got past Dub housing. I mean, I, lo I love the early no, singles. No, New Picnic Time is, is ridiculous. It's yeah. like an impenetrable record. That's true, but I I did listen to a lot of per, uh, Perubu, and there's some in the same way. Actually, I think of them as kind of the American analog to the Fall, um, as close as you can get, because mm. they do have as deep a discography. Not really. It's really it's long. He's still around. yeah, because it's just bit, I mean David. I know, I've seen them comparatively recently down at the Echo, but David Thomas, yeah, because it's always just been, David Thomas would be the equivalent of Smith, I guess. He was the only constant member, and he was the singer and the songwriter. Yeah. Uh, they have some really great late-period stuff. Like, I, I, I swear, there's this song on a record that came out in, like, 2015 or something that's as good as anything they've ever done. It's really, uh, it's called Golden Surf 2. It's, it's great. I have a man 
David Thomas is someone who I think when he's gone, everybody's kind it of... It will be very sad. Uh, it really will. And I... I because, uh, he really is not appreciated. He's truly a hip priest. Apparently there's a lyric that pertains to David Thomas on... I forget where it is. I was looking through these notes. On this here. album? Yeah, there is. I, mean, I can't find it. I've forgotten which one it was. But uh, apparently Marky Smith got offended because he walked into a room and David Thomas was there and Thomas ignored him or something. It was down at the mm -hmm. Rap Trade offices, I think, and apparently there's a lyric on Hex Induction Hour that references that, but I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but I'll, we'll find it before... The, I think that uh, if, if Thomas had known who he was dealing with... Well, he, so, uh, he said Thomas was questioned about it afterwards and he said he knew who Mark was, but he didn't know what he looked like. Oh, yeah. See, I feel like that was just a misconnection. Yeah. I feel like they would have been kindred spirits. Yeah, um, well, they both had a fondness for uh, the same substances, I think. What? S speed. Speed. Oh, here it is. I found it. No, I haven't. Forget it. Said something about rough trade. Yeah. No. There it is. Look. David Thomas of Ubu believes. <laughs> and now, what is it that's about him? It's a lyric on Deer Park, which is in fact the next song. The lyric is "Fat Captain Beefheart in potatoes <laughs> with his zits." <laughs> Fat Captain Beefheart. Say, have, you know, say you have her, have a chance to meet Fat Captain Beefheart imitators with zits. For some reason, Perubu often got criticized for copying Beefheart. I don't think they sound anything like him, but I can see why people would think that. Sure. And clearly they're influenced by him, but they don't sound anything like him any no, more than they, the fall do. They have a, um, a, a, an abstract quality to it that's similar. I, I could see it. I can see, yeah, but they're, they're more abstract. They're really out there moments sound like the magic band a little bit wow i can't believe how on topic we were by accident Ma yeah so mark came into the room and stood there i had no idea who he was or rather what he looked like so i continued with my conversation he took it as a snub years later we were at a festival i thought right i'll repair this situation so i kept to look out for an opportunity to be nice of course not knowing what he looked like i ended up in a conversation with someone backstage again ignoring mark no. in a remarkably parallel set of events no <laughs> oh my yeah. god he pro Mark probably went to his grave thinking David Thomas didn't like him or something. That's tragic. Yeah, so Deer Park's another scathing song, another abrasive, scathing piece about West London and its trendy inhabitants and rough trade. Yeah, I had to wade through 500 European punks. <laughs> So that's how it was. Spare apart from the sleeping promo bat They haven't had an idea in two years Dollars and dogs must keep the company on its feet So have you ever had a chance to meet? But that's a beat by imitators with zips Who is the King Jack concept? Have you been to the English department? It's a large type minstrel ranch This is what she was on a ritual in the dark And have you been to the English I love that song, uh, British People in Hot Weather. Oh yeah, that's a classic. Beach Whaling Whopping 
His armpit has a sprouting Serpentine Serpentine British people in hot weather British people in hot weather <laughs> <laughs> he, He's laughing at his own line in that armpit hair snaking uh, He laughs oh, at when yeah. he says serpentine So funny He's uh very fond of Wyndham Lewis. Very much so. Somewhere he's talking about Wyndham Lewis, and he's like, he must have hated the people he. Well, you know, not, Wyndham Lewis. I've read Tar is one of my favorite books, T A R R, and he actually wrote a book called Rotting Hill, which was a play on Notting Hill, of course, which is the very neighborhood that Mark is heaping disdain on in Deer Park, and wow. the classical to some extent. They both hated the same vibes. Yeah, well, I mean, Wyndham Lewis took the fashionable set in London to task himself in his novels from the, you know, the teens and the early 20s, like Tar and the Apes of God. And I've got that copy of Blast, you know. Yeah, yeah, and Blast, Which course. was like his, like a zine from the 30s or the 20s. Earlier, probably, yeah. It's crazy. But, it's like um, this very hyper-modernist, like, uh, I guess mo- modernist? Was he a vorticism? Vorticism, yeah. What's fauvism? That's a German um, genre. It's, it's more soft, pastel-like stuff. Okay, the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh. vorticism is like... He, he was basically a fascist, right? In some, or something he's been painted with that. Book. Yeah, I can see how Mark would be a big adherent of William Wyndham Do you think Lewis's. he was a fascist? Mark? No. Uh, Wyndham well, Lewis? Wyndham Lewis. No, not at all. No. I think he used fascist aesthetics. Well, well, he wasn't like Ezra Pound. Was Ezra Pound actually a fully fascist Yeah, absolutely. Guy? I like, mean, he sp- he spouted the most grievous anti-Semitic rhetoric imaginable, and he ended up he ended up in jail because of it. In jail? Well, yeah, in Italy, he was confined to a, an asylum. Wait, what? For many years. How? You have to be so anti-Semitic yeah, to be put that, into jail yeah, for I anti- exactly what got <laughs> in him Italy. No, he was a, he was a sympathizer during the war. So I'm he not, was put in jail by who? Yeah, that's a good question. It was Italian in Italy. He's a dreadful character, much. See, I never got really into Ezra Pound. I guess I don't need to. <laughs> oh, the Cantos, you've got it right here. I mean, you gotta have him. You're you're a poet, and he. I have to say, Ezra Pound looked pretty cool. Yeah, he looked great. I mean, he had a fantastic haircut. Yeah, he looked sick. But um, I don't know about his poetry. I or mean, his it's so willfully. It's, it's unreadably willfully obscure. Well, you don't like willful obscurantism. That's something. <laughs> that well, yeah. you you take it from Mark. You like it from Mark. <laughs> well, that's the thing is Mark, Marky Smith puts. I think a really delicate balance which you might not always notice but it's there mm. he balances out his obscure mm. unreadable bullshit with things that are directly related to just things that you notice in daily life and vibes you don't like from people mm. and feelings about mm. like well that guy sucks and he puts this uh, elevated poetic mm. attention onto that mm. and then you end up with great music. Yeah. 
He is the critic as musician, and he doesn't even always critique other art. It's like critiquing people's vibes. He really just is like, you know that line where he says, it had an ephemeral whinging, whinging aspect. aspect. Yeah, that's a classic. Operation I do not like your tone. It has an ephemeral whinging aspect. I think that's on infotainment scan. An ephemeral in- whinging aspect. I do not like your tone. It has an ephemeral yeah, well, whinging. He was often criticizing critics themselves, of course, and I think the critic was the target of that line. That's it's just maybe like what we C-R-E-P. need. C R E E P. C R E E P. Is that about a critic? Yeah, I think so. They often are. There's some on this record, actually. I mean, Mersud Maged, of course. Mersud Maged, which we should talk about. Is it it's not, it's not next. next? What is next? Is it? Um, yeah, it is, actually. How does it classic. start? It's, uh, when I hear oh, yeah, this great song, first line. can you read it? Yeah. It's uh, his heart organ was where it should be. His brain was in his ass. His hand was out of his pocket. His psyche's in the hearth. His That's some good rhyming. I like that it says heart. His heart organ. Yeah. It's like it's not like not just saying somebody's heart, but the thing that counts as a heart. <laughs> the thing that for them functions as a heart. Well, this is a classic case. It sounds like he just walked into the studio while the band were riffing and he just started ranting over Well, the, that's one of the best moments on the record. Yeah. It's because it's this, like, stupid, strummed, like, maudlin little moment and then it just blasts into, the like, a crater. so far ahead in terms of like what he was doing as a commentator on music within music he's kind of like being uh he's kind of a megalomaniac in a good way he's really got his like tentacles everywhere he's like nobody's safe he's like one of those racist caricatures of a jew as a octopus (laughs) But he's sort of doing that with just culture and music. He's just sort of like got his arms around the world and he's like, you can't get away with it. Anything that comes out of that little beak is going to be uh, truth, but you don't want to... Yes, a quest for ugly truths. The unutterable slang truth. Yeah, that's you gave me that record. That uh, did I? Oh. You gave me in a hole, isn't that? No, no, that's room room, room to, to live. live. Okay, in a hole's the other, is that an EP? So, it's a live record. It uh, came out around this time, but it's time the same time from their Australian tour. Room to live is like kind of like an expansion pack. It's like an EP of this. It well, feels like it's a full record. Room to live came out directly after this. After this, and people 
were very disappointed in it because they thought it was weak. And it lacked all the... I mean, it was a del deliberate act and of perverse, you, perversity and self-sabotage. You self -sabotage. chose to give me that one, eh? I love that album. Yeah, actually, it came with this um, printout where somebody wrote a thoughtful review of it. It was in the record sleeve. Oh, really? Yeah. It must have been well, from it was the, a reissue. It must have been from the store or the... Maybe, I know, I guess it was just packaged with it. It was like liner notes, but on just like a piece of paper. Uh he s says that it's like um, basically the first time you see them repeating themselves. And if we're talking about the idea of like where does the fall fit in with like Jokerman mindset or what have you, it's uh, that's the first time where you see that and you're either going to decide you're still with them or you are so obsessed with the novelty factor that you probably weren't meant to be a fall fan in the first place. Like, I think the brunt of their career is him repeating himself in various ways. But it doesn't mean it's bad. The infinite variety of repetition. Yeah, the three R's. <laughs> repetition, repetition, repetition. It does, you can always repeat something different. Repetition in the music and we're never going to lose it. Yeah, he said that was like their first thing they ever said practically was repetition in the music and we're never going to lose it I told you that thing I heard about repeating oneself oh yes repeat yourself loudly and often and I, I said that on stage the other night I think I honestly heard it from uh, I think Anna Kachian on uh, Red Scare said it attributed to someone else but I don't know who oh. but it's great advice all you have is your word and if that's the case then Repetition is an act of grace. Exactly. It's like a way of affirming the thing that binds us as society, really. Mm. The more you decide to subvert that, the less trustworthy you are as somebody who wants to communicate. <laughs> and if you don't want to communicate, yeah. then you're not part of society. Like The most fucked up freaks are the people who are always trying to be novel, no matter what. Yeah. Marky Smith was not always incomprehensible. He was always communicating something. And I think he respected the intelligence of the listener enough to be like, I'll communicate it pretty weird this time. And then another time it's like living too late mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. that speaks mm -hmm. directly mm -hmm. to your experience. This record is an interesting one where I think he finds himself uh, playing around with that a lot. But the, the next song's fairly accessible. Winter, another story song. Entrances uncovered. Street signs you never saw. All entrances delivered.
like a two-part song. Well, on the record, it was the last song on the first side and the second, and the first song on the second side. And it has an extraordinary thumping bass beat that just—it's a really kind of beautiful song. It is actually. a beautiful song. It's very evocative, and it, it evokes the title. As he often did with his songs, actually. Winter seemed to be his season. You don't think of him doing summery songs or springtime songs. It's always autumn or winter. British people in hot weather, yeah. It's like he has a whole song about why that's weird and bad. Yeah, he oh, liked yeah. being chilly. Uh -huh. Because it's in cold weather when you have an excuse and reason to be just in a pub drinking all the time. <laughs> Well, you know, back in the day, in his drinking days, the licensing hours were still in effect and you couldn't walk in... The pubs closed at 2.30 and didn't reopen until 5.30. Did you experience that? Yeah, it was awful. It was, I'm talking, comparatively recently. Jeez. So, in London, you sometimes you go to drinking clubs in the afternoon, which were amazing. What's a drinking club? Well, you had to be a member or go with somebody who was a member. And... It was just a bar, but only real hardcore drinkers would be there. That's astonishing, because in America, you could always... there was In every city, there's a bar that opens at, like, you know, yeah. 8 a.m. Like the uh, the drawing room. They're yeah, probably the drawing, open early. Well, they used to open at 6. Now they're not opening till 11, from what I understand, which is sad. 6 in the morning? Yeah, used to be. I mean, yeah, it'd be filled with cokeheads and strippers and so forth at six in the morning no it's not but opening now, yeah, now where do they go they've got to go to england <laughs> <laughs> well you have to drive 200 miles to get to a good bar here anyway 200 miles what are well, you talking virtually. about where's a good bar here yeah well i don't want to say it on air everyone will go well, there. cut it uh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also nervous about blowing up the spot. I remember when El Prado, like three years ago, you could go in there any oh. day of the week. You saw they just had a big LA Times article about it. I did. It's officially It was outrageous. Over. I mean, they employed every cliche in the book in the article. Of course, of like, course. It was, it was, it was like incredible. stupid art. About, they like, even used the word iconic. Really? Well, I mean, that's not unusual. I mean, it, every, it, it, what, what is it if not dreadful. like, it, it is kind of that, but that's what serves as iconic these days. And this record is a diatribe against easy, iconic status. A lot of people are yes-men to their mediocre musicians. A lot friends. of musicians surround themselves with yes-men. They never question themselves because they're always surrounded by people who are blowing smoke up their arse. Yeah, and you don't always have to do it. There, no. there are ways of getting around being part oh, of the yeah, problem. Yeah, I know how to do it. You know how to do it. Yeah. There's ways of just like not being aggressive. They won't even know that you don't like their music. Yeah. You don't even know. They won't know you don't respect them. Well, you if it's you just exhibit familiarity with their work and they assume you like it. That's you right. You don't have That's... to say anything about it. I guess his obscurantism is a kind of uh, alibi obscurantism is an alibi yeah yeah it is an alibi yeah sometimes that's the only way to get a message across in a certain way so winter yeah winter goes into winter part two which I'll say is I think one of the prettiest parts yes, of the record yes it's a very pretty song ugly pretty ugly pretty 
ugly pretty, which like with women and men is like the place where something becomes beautiful. Yeah. Ugly and pretty and kind of so, more often with men than women, I think. Really? You think that ugly men are prettier than ugly women? <laughs> <laughs> I think the two ugliness and prettiness are more often combined on male features and female in an sure. effective and uh, seductive way. That's probably, yeah, that's true. Mark, Marky Smith is kind of like that. Kind of. Up to I mean, he was, <clears throat> he was very, in his younger days. I mean, he just wrecked himself with oh, drinking. Totally. He, yeah. What do you think about his drinking and the way that he kind of just abused his body clearly? Well, he, he enjoyed abusing it. He said that he liked testing how much his body could stand. Wow. Which sounds pretty excruciating. But he's certainly not the only person to have done that. No, but most people who do that don't have an awareness of it like that. No. They wouldn't ever utter that aloud. No. That's a really weird and interesting, mostly weird thing to do. And he died at 60. Exactly. Um... Well, he never stopped, and that's it. He never stopped. He didn't, you know, he he looked down on it. He wouldn't eat vegetables either. Really? No, he wouldn't. Oh. Well, I'm sure he did, but he... he No, he probably ate them in the context of, like, onions in a, in a, in a meat pie or something. He got his vitamins just, like, without knowing he was getting them. No, he looked great throughout, but there was a time not... A few years after this, probably during the Bricks years, where he did start being a bit more attentive towards fashion. Did you hmm. know? Well, when? Sort of in the mid-80s, the you late You mean 80s. like the, uh, like when the they had Curious Orange era? Yeah, exactly. You know, he started kind of dressing more like flashily. Yeah, he dressed more flash. But um, he kind of was always sort of a normcore icon. Oh, very much so. You know, he did. just liked, and, and I love his sort of philosophy of fashion, I think. He was a great dressed, great dresser. Because well, he didn't, I think he understood that he was like, it would be too much if he dressed up all the time in this sort of way because of how much he is just as a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, you have yeah. to dress down yeah, so that you, you can do. be the main event yeah. if you're kind of unusual. It's uh, something that a lot of men could probably uh, learn from. Jokerman listeners, a.k.a. a lot of men, take note. <laughs> Maybe dress a little bit more stock, but, you know, smart, but don't don't overdo it. And never wear novelty socks. Oh, novelty socks. Red socks, though. That can be cool. It's a first. Wait, you're wearing red socks, right? Yeah. Oh. Isn't that something? Yeah. You're working this... way, your way up to, like, Ian Sfinonia's red no. socks. I had these are maroon. I had to think twice before putting those on either. But um, yeah, there's that great picture of Mark with red socks. Well, he certainly did something for the sleeveless sweater that nobody else had done. Sle- he revolutionized the, the sleeveless sweater. sweater. Vest. Yeah, the sweater vest. Yeah. I cannot picture him wearing a sweater vest right now. When did he do that? Oh, I'm sure if you look his name up, you find a photo almost immediately. If I search Marky Smith sweater vest? Well, I don't know if they call him a sweater vest over there. It's a, it's a sweater, but... Yeah, it's like a sleeveless sweater. Wait, but that picture, is it a vet? I thought that was just a, vet, a sweater with, you know, the one on the cup, 
No, you're cover you're, what? Um, it's not a sweater yes, vest. That. That's actually yeah, yeah. a right. sweater with a pattern just on the center. <laughs> yeah. So you're wrong, but you're right. No, but he wore sweater vests too, though. I mean, look at him wearing all he these was, sweaters. Yeah. Big patterns. He just had a great fashion sense. No, this see, is that's, what, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, this, that leather jacket, that looks awful. I His mean, it's ridiculous. He looks... Uh, I mean, it was during the Curious Orange era when he was... They were literally doing the soundtrack to a ballet, so... Damn. Yeah. See, he, sometimes he does look like an old woman. <laughs> yeah. What else do we have on this record? Um, the next song is Who Makes the Nazis. Oh, who Makes the Nazis. Very odd song. Who Makes the Nazis? <laughs> Just stop sideways. What's oh, that? is that next? When what used to excite you does not, like you've used up all your allowance of experiences, Yeah, it looks to be. I mean, we can just kind of skip through this well, last part. No, I mean, who makes the Nazis is certainly worthy of mention. We'll talk about who makes the Nazis. What, what well, he's saying who makes the Nazis, and then he goes on to talk about you know, different breeds of cattle and... Uh, Longhorn breed. Or references to British daytime television. And uh, the what he seems to be saying is that everybody makes them or nobody makes them, and it's absurd to even discuss who makes them. Huh. Um, and it has some of his most bizarre lyrics on it, like that one. Longhorn! Longhorn breed! The All the O's, wino, spermo, 29 year old, arse licking, hate old. Is this song about the sort of modern uh, phenomena of the incel and the sort of like uh, Nazi anime no, kids? No, I don't think so. No. You know about that, right? No. Well, I mean, I know what incels are. Okay, well. Uh, in fact, I know some. <laughs> A lot of them are like online and they, they're really like, they sort of fetishize and use as iconography like anime imagery. Oh. The anime can be fascist. Clearly it can and is sometimes. It sort of is inherently anti Semitic because their noses are so small. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, you want to wrap it up? Or what? Yeah, let's. I guess let's wrap it up. We end say. with. 
and this day. I mean, there's no, Iceland. Uh, yeah, I think we've covered the best songs, honestly. I mean, and this day is is it's just they wanted to have an hour long record, so they threw this it's twelve minute song yeah, on them. I don't know. I don't think that the main point of this record is to even listen to all of it. No. How long is the record? One hour long. That's what it said on the sleeve, right? Okay, but is it true? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And that's what it would have been. It says one hour, one hour, one hour. If it hadn't been for the really throwaway song they put on the end, it would be 48 minutes or something. You've got to have the hour if you're advertising it. The cover is great. Yeah, the cover's amazing. And it's. You see, Pavement went to town with that. Yeah. And uh, Parquet Courts. Oh, I don't know. I've heard of them. Uh, that, uh, Andrew Savage of Parquet Courts, though, to his credit, he's actually a very good artist. But there's there's something about some of their records that looks, you know, I think lovingly indebted to this stuff. How many stars out of three do you give it? Three stars. Yeah, me too. It gets three. I mean, it's hard to give any full record less than three stars, really. Yeah. Certainly I less than two three. stars. No, they all have three. Like, which one would be two? What would be a two-star full record? Oh, I can think of a few, which is, they're just not my which ones, ones I personally Oh, the, okay, the only for. one I would give is um, the wonderful... the the. That's the one I don't like. Me too. I swear, I never listened to it. I have a, I have a, I have I don't like I have it a horror of that record. I don't actually. know why. I just don't like it. I don't either. Wonderful and Frightening World. Yeah. A lot of people love that yeah, one. I, know. I don't like it at all. It feels it's, compromised. Yeah. I don't know why. That's right, it does. Yeah. I, I mean, I it think was a, it's when he was, he was too in love to yeah, make a good record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. He it was, was right after Perverted. It was the first full record with Bricks. Yeah, and he's too in love. Yeah. They later would, I think, find a balance where they were able to work. Bricks and Mark yes, were able to work together so. really well, but at that point, it just feels forced or something. Yeah, I mean, I might even give that record one star. Honestly, there's a couple of others I'm not. Let's nuts let's about. collectively give that one one star. <laughs> I mean, maybe we should talk about that one next, just so that we can like parse it and like try. To but then out. we'd probably end up loving it and give I it think three we stars would. by the end of the oh, show. Oh, we would. You know, we would. <laughs> Oh, there's a few others. I, uh, I'm not mad about Extricate for some reason. I like Extricate. That's the one that has British people in hot weather. Popcorn double feature. That's cool. It's a good cover. Is Obscure that a cover? Ass- yeah, it's like it a have to w- be with that title. That's that's another thing about Marky Smith in the fall is I've learned about a lot of random music I never would have heard through him, and a lot of it has nothing to do with punk or rock. It has to do with rock and roll, or blues, or well, folk. Or he something. did. He covered some great rockabilly songs. Fold, rockabilly, folding right. money, jungle. F folding money. Yeah, as great. it's stylized, is one of my very favorite fall songs. Marshall Sweet. We should talk about. Uh, I know you're fond of that one. Yeah, we it's could cool. do that. Uh, <laughs> and. And Bourgeois Town, of course, okay, his so Lead this Belly is, cover is great. That's one of your wild takes, is that you're a huge fan of... Uh, are You Are Missing Winner. Are You Are Missing yeah. Winner, probably the one that everyone hates, but I don't I, think I, There's no reason like, to hate it. No, it's, it's no, cool. It's, 
no worse. It's better than a lot of the records from that era. Yeah, it's un- it's completely it's without pretension. No, th- people didn't like the cover, or they didn't like the title, or something. because well, it's know. like how, that <laughs> cover and that <laughs> title are both. They look like he t- tried not to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and well, whereas a lot of the early fall stuff like this, you look at the cover and as as abrasive as the music is, as like wild as the record sounds, you get the sense that he cared a lot about what he was doing and it has this kind of thoughtful nature that lets you when you when you like it then there's a lot to dig into it and to feel like you're part of the team maybe not the club but the team well this was fun yeah that was fun say Jokerman John Sorry? I mean, like the guest says, Jokerman. Okay, with Jokerman. Finality. Jokerman. The finale. With finality. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Jokerman. <laughs> <laughs>